So we are in this series looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you're visiting here or you just joined us, the journey that Ecclesiastes takes us on is a journey of thinking about how we make sense of the world and our life in the world, because it's not easy to make sense of the world. And the writer to Ecclesiastes takes us on this journey by, as, by putting, us in the, put, putting us in the footsteps, as it were, of this fellow Kohelet. In some translations, uh, it's translated the teacher, who's a rich, powerful, thoughtful man who sought to f- try and figure out life using his reason and observation and experience. And what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying right the way through is, you know what? If you try and understand the world without a perspective, without God's perspective, you discover that it's enigmatic, that it, you, can't, you can't finally make sense of everything that's there unless in some way God is part of your thinking. And uh, so that's what we're looking at. That's what we've been looking at. And I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey. Um, I'm assuming for whatever reason there's something going on there and you want to connect with God in some way. That's why you're here. And what we're going to look at today is how uh, we're to make sense of the reality of our relationships and our friendships and our need for community and what God's plan is to address that fundamental yearning in the human heart to be connected with him but also with each other. And so we're going to address head-on what it is that causes us to feel lonely and uh, how it is that God wants to address that and what that might look like. So there's just a short passage here in Ecclesiastes where uh, the, the teacher Kohelet looks at this and he says, I saw something else enigmatic under the sun, and there was a man all alone. Uh, he had neither son nor brother. Now, this isn't because he was a toxic, dysfunctional person with you know, attachment disorders. It, we don't know. It's probable that for whatever reason, his sons and brothers um, had been killed or died, as happened often in the third century BC when they were young. And so what he did, now, of course, none of us would ever do this, what he did was to fill the gap in his life, to find meaning and purpose in his life, given that he didn't have any family around him, he went to work. And he worked really hard, and he did really well. But he discovered this thing, that his eyes were not content with his wealth. There is a hole in his life that is meant to be filled with relationships, with community. And no matter how successful he was, and no matter how much money he had, he figured out that that didn't work. And he wasn't content. It was never enough. He said, for whom, am I, for whom am I toiling and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? You see, uh, we typically practice delayed gratification to provide for the needs of others. That's what keeps us going as parents. You withhold all sorts of good from yourself so that you can provide for your kids and your extended family and so forth. He says, why am I bothering? He says, this too is enigmatic, a miserable business. It's a miserable business to be alone and to fill that loneliness with work. Now, look, there'd be none of us here who've ever been tempted to do this, I'm sure. Uh, None of us are lonely, uh, and none of us are tempted to find meaning and purpose in our work and in our achievements. 
says it's a miserable business. And you know this. You, um, you know this when you look around and you see that, and maybe this has been you, all your relationships were, all your significant relationships were work relationships. Because you went to work every day, you saw all these people, you built these relationships, but, but now you've been retrenched or you've retired and you look at your life and you go, it's a miserable business because there's no one else who really loves me and cares for me. <laughs> there's a, um, I saw a meme on Facebook that said uh, Jesus' greatest miracle was being a 30-year-old man with 12 close friends. I, I can only speak for men. But let me tell you, there's a crisis of loneliness in our culture. It's all around us, isn't it? Um, and loneliness is a killer. Loneliness is a killer. We know that social interaction with people correlates positively with longevity in our old age. So if you want to live long, have lots of friends. Be deeply woven into community. Uh, down at, uh, at the 9 o'clock service where we have a couple of uh, quite elderly people in their 90s and late 80s, they were nodding vigorously. And when you look and, and, I, and when you speak to them, they're the most plugged-in people I know at their stage of life, enmeshed in this community and in all sorts of other stuff. So uh, it's a miserable business to be lonely but it's a business we all participate in. So I don't know if you saw, there was an article uh, that Bernard Salt wrote in uh, The Australian this weekend called Lone Rangers in a Selfish Age. Isn't that a great photo? Holidaying alone on the beach, playing by yourself. You've got your margarita or your cocktail and you're taking a photo and you're alone. And the article is about the trend, the increasing trend of Australians to live by themselves. Single-person households are being formed at an increasingly rapid rate. Now, that's not always necessarily bad. Last weekend, uh, we had my in-laws uh, and family with us. There were nine of us plus the dog in the house over the weekend. I could see the benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Right then, I thought, oh, we just need a tiny house that no one else can come into. Our area, I don't know if you know this, um, we have 31% of households in our immediate area are single-person households against a national stat of 24%. Some of those are freely chosen. Others of those are simply the reality of... Uh, women living older than men, and as their male partners die, they live by themselves. That's true. Uh, Bernard Salt has a great demographic. The, the, the sole person, if you're, in your, if you're a man in your 40s or 50s, you're more likely to be living alone. But then, of course, that changes as you go into your 70s and 80s. It tends to be women who are more likely to be living alone. And we're lonely in all sorts of ways. Um, I read an article recently on Medium, and uh, there was a, a woman writing, and she's in her 30s in the States, and she had decided that she was going to date married men. So using Tinder, and she thought, I'm just going to have casual sex with married men because they're most reliable, they really don't want any, no strings attached, it's all good, and we can just have sex, and, and no, you know, no, uh, no ties there. 
After doing this for a while, she wrote this article where she said what she discovered was the excruciating loneliness of so many married men. Why are married men on Tinder looking for casual sex? It's because they're lonely. Lonely in their marriages. And as men, so many of us have been taught that the way we can find community and friendship and affection and intimacy and love, the only way we can find that is through sex. So even in our marriages, we can be desperately lonely. Sometimes people will come and talk to me, and once they've heard my advice, they sometimes don't come back. Um, and, uh, and I'll have people talk to me in their, you know, perhaps in their 30s, and they're desperate to get married. For whatever reason, it hasn't worked, and they're chugging through their 30s and just desperate to get married, and lonely, and it's a burden to be lonely, and it's painful to be in your 30s, and everyone else is partnering up, and you're just there. And, and one of the things I'll say to them is, listen, there's only one thing worse than being lonely and single. You know what that is? To be lonely and married. To be lonely in your marriage is dreadful. So be very careful. Be very careful that your loneliness doesn't drive you into a lonely marriage. And be very careful to work in your own life to be the sort of person who can actually make a deeply intimate, passionate, committed marriage work. And the best place to learn that is developing the capacity to make deep, intimate, committed friendships work. Because marriage, after all, is really a a very special, specific form of friendship. So uh, we live in a world with great loneliness. And we discover uh, in our culture, while we're tempted to do this all the time, that work is not a viable substitute for relationships. It's a temptation, right? But it doesn't work. It's a miserable business. So uh, what then are we to do? Well, what I, wanted, what I want us to think about today is three levels, three, I guess, levels or, or ways or domains in which loneliness and the hunger for community operates and then show you at each of those levels uh, some answers and some solutions to our systemic loneliness. So let's start off at the very high level. The very high level, our loneliness and our struggles with to form community and friendship uh, in life happens at the level of ideas or worldview, how we think about the world. So uh, how do we think about the world? Well, as a community, we think about the world essentially as uh, individualists. As we live in a world of individualism, and flowing on from individualism, uh, a competitive, competitivism, is that a word? Um, and consumption are the three great uh, ideas that shape our experience of the world. So individualism is the view that says ultimate reality is the individual. So you as you and me as me, if you boil all of reality down, what you're left with is a bunch of individuals, right? Does that make sense? Now, of course, it might be hard to understand because we're actually all brought up this way, so it's hard to reflect on it. Uh, But, for example, a way to understand the difference is in another culture, 
if you were to think about in more traditional cultures, ultimate reality is the group, the tribe. That's what constitutes reality. In another worldview, uh, the 20th century showed us, perhaps in, uh, in Marxism, that, uh, that ultimate reality was class, was the broad mass of people uh, in a group. Our culture says, no, 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 no. What's really real at the end of the day is you as you and me as me. Now, the problem with individualism is that it leads inevitably to competitiveness. So we compete with each other because, as individuals, we've been taught that the way to fulfillment is through consumption. So I'm an individual, and as Ecclesiastes 4 says, I work, 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 and I get all the stuff, I shove it into my soul, and if I can purchase, if I can work hard and achieve enough money, I can exchange my money for leisure, for health, for security, for goods and services that will fill this hole inside of me, and then I've won. So I'm an atomized individual who's constantly competing with everybody else in order to consume what I need to make my life work. And that is the narrative of our culture in varying forms. Now, of course, um, we do that in sophisticated ways. It's not the law of the jungle all the time. But at the core level, this is, this is what makes us work. Of course, that means everybody in the world that I encounter ultimately is either a resource, you are either a resource to help me get what I need to find life, or you're a threat blocking my path to fulfillment. I see this with parenting. I talk about this a bit. Um, you, may, you may be in this situation, you may know others who are in this situation, perhaps Again, in your 30s, or you've seen people, or your 40s, um, and I'll talk to someone who is desperate to have children. And, and, and very often, these are women who are highly accomplished, particularly in our area, highly accomplished, great careers, doing incredibly well. They have everything the world has to offer. And then they say, but, but, I, but I need a child. I need a baby. I've got to have a baby to be fulfilled. And when you dig down, it's, it's the, the baby is the fulfillment for me. And I say to them things like, well, let's think about what you're hoping to achieve. What's driving you here? See, this is the, the individualism and the comp competitiveness and the consumption means that sometimes we're driven to uh, reproductive choices that are really very much about the fulfillment of the mum. Right? I don't need a husband. I don't need a man to be part of this. I just need a donor. And I understand the pain of wanting a child. I, I get that. But then I say to these people, well, listen, the thing is, you're not just having a baby who's there to, to fulfill the little hole in your soul that your otherwise extraordinarily successful life has given you. A baby is not a means to self-actualization. A baby is a teenager in waiting whose primary job is to beat the selfishness out of you. That's a kid, right? So it, it's, but it's, and I, I'm not saying this if this, is, if this is your pain and this is your struggle. Uh, this is not meant to really, it doesn't take the pain away, but it helps you understand why we think about kids and life in this way. Because it's about us and our desires and our needs and our consumption. And this is what is primary and ultimate. And I don't say this with any judgment. I say this to illustrate the point and to show us how we've got to this. Now, what's the alternative? 
what's a solution to this? Because this isn't working very well for us. It's not working that well. Uh, well, the solution is, uh, and, and you, is, is theologically or spiritually, it's a different view of the world. That's supposed to be not working really well, is it? It's hard to, funny it's how hard it is to draw an arrow. There we go. Uh, the alternative is uh, a vision that we get from the Bible, and I'll give you a little bit of jargon for this. Uh, Trinitarian personalism. You go, yes, I came to church to learn about Trinitarian personalism. When you go to work tomorrow and someone says to you, oh, what did you do on the weekend? You can go, well, I heard this great lecture on Trinitarian personalism. Can I tell you what it means? And that'll probably limit your career, but you know, could make for an interesting conversation. Trinitarian personalism says that the, the basic unit of reality, the, the fundamental building block of reality is not the individual nor the group, but it's persons in community. Before the world was created, the Bible tells us God existed as one God in a community of perfect love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so ultimate reality, what, what the world is, is des- made for and designed to support and where we will find the good, the true, and the beautiful is in a community of love, of free persons in self-giving love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you and I, the Bible says in Genesis, that, that it, we are made in the image of this relational community of love. So our lives are not about us. And not about the group, but about us in relationship with each other. Trinitarian personalism says that persons are persons through other persons. Our relationships of love constitute us as beings. You can't have a being without relationship. So what that means is when we think about parenting or marriage or economics or the workplace we have to think about, does this, do these things create the conditions for the flourishing of persons in relationship, of communities of love? Why is it when someone dies who is close to you that you feel like you've lost a part of yourself? Why is that? Well, it's because you've lost a part of yourself. We're constituted by our relationships. And when someone close to us dies, we lose a little bit of us. Now, everything changes on this basis. How we see economics. Economics can't just be about maximizing the individual gain for the individual. Though that is important because... We're still individuals in relationship, but economics need to be seen as a way to organize our society and our community in a way that will promote the flourishing of persons in relationship. So you want to think about labor laws. You want to think about your tax system. You want to think about your approach to uh, assisted fertility. You want to think about your divorce and marriage legislation. How do you frame this with a view that says ultimate reality is about persons in relationship? It's who we are. We're not individuals. Nor are we just a class. By the way, this is not the main point here, but there is a resurgence as, as, uh, as hyper-competitive individualism in a, in a late 
consumer capitalist world breaks down and, and it's creaking and groaning at a worldview level and at a structural level, uh, the sort of the Marxist or neo-Marxist alternative of conceptualizing the world as the group. We're just, we're a group. So we're, we're the group of men or the group of women or the groups of this particular gender identity or this class of people. And all of life is seen as a struggle between classes. This way of thinking is resurgent and starting to pop up. And it's terribly dangerous. Just as individualism leads to actually the, the death of individuals, so eroding individualism and just saying we're just part of the group is toxic. And the 21st century, uh, the 20th century is full of examples of the wholesale massacre that happens when, when the unique value of individuals is lost. So in a world that jumps between uh, competitive consumption and now the re-emerging neo-Marxist group think that will actually be quite totalitarian and oppressive, followers of Jesus stand up and say, no, there's a third way to live. It's the way of Trinitarian personalism that says the group is massively significant because we're in community, but you can never lose the individual because the group is always made up of unique, precious individuals who together form ultimate reality and community. Okay, here ends the lecture on the fundamental ontology of the universe. And it's really significant to understand and to, to say the Trinity is what, what grounds this vision of the world. And it's an un idea unique to Christianity and unique in its political and economic uh, and psychological implications. And we must not lose that. We must defend it and argue for it in the public, the public square. But ideas uh, also give rise to various practices or lived realities, and the practices that flow from, from this that actually make loneliness more likely and persons in relationship community more difficult are uh, a range of practices in our society. Like as we move into cities, the move to cities causes increasing fragmentation of our lives, doesn't it? Uh, let me just show of hands. How many of you are living in the same house that you were living in five years ago? How many? Okay, this is quite stable. How many of you have moved house in the last 12 months? Look around, that's quite a lot. How many of you have moved cities in the last five years? Wow. How many of you have changed places of employment uh, within the last year? Look at that. Within the last three years? Within the last five years, how many of you wish you could change employment tomorrow? <laughs> uh, I won't ask this, how many of you have changed life partners in the last five years? But there's, there'd be some of you, some of us, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Lindsay. Um, we, we, it, it used to be the case that you were born in a village and you lived in the village and you died in the village. You, you chose your mate from a very small cohort of people around you and, uh, and you knew everybody, for better or worse. That is not our reality. You go to work somewhere, you live another place, you go to church somewhere else, you have friendships dotted all over the place, you move suburbs, you move houses, you move cities, you move countries. And you create, in all of this, you can create multiple identities. You can be one person at work, another person at home, another person at church, and about 25 different people online. So where's the coherence? Who, who, do you, who, who is your tribe? Who is your people? Who are the people who are with you, who will be with you through the course of life? Well, massive fragmentation. Um, we, 
we, we then have a, in this city, we have a, another thing that makes life hard. As we're fragmented, we, we find the cost of living is causing us to behave in ways that are profoundly erosive and corrosive of community, don't we? Like, um, I don't know, we've colluded in this idea through our own, I think, greed, this massive infatuation with an asset bubble of property fueled by low interest rates and tax policy and all kinds of craziness, that now it's really very, very hard to live in a city like Sydney, and this is not unique to Sydney, it's major cities around the developed world. It's hard to live unless both of you work really hard and really long hours. And there's a lot of anxiety about that. There's anxiety uh, for those of us who are in the middle of our careers because we know our careers are very precarious, right? And, and you know, if you, if you get bumped from your perch in your, in your mid-40s to your mid-50s, it's very hard to bounce back in at the same level, right? So what do you do? So you just work and you work and you work and we become slaves. And your partner has to do that. And, then we, and, and if you're young, the anxiety is, well, how on earth am I ever going to find a place, a stable place to live and raise my family? A place to call home. It's very hard. So, so these things make life difficult. The consumption um, makes us very uh, fluid, in our attachments. So what happens is you, if something stops meeting your needs, you simply move on, right? And that's fine with your choice of shampoo. Oh, it's not working for me. I'll choose from the other 25 shampoos on the shelf, right? Great. It's okay for your coffee shop. Well, you know, the barista changed. And he didn't have quite enough facial hair to really be, make good coffee. And so, no, I've got to find another coffee shop, right? It's not so great with your friendships, your partner for life or for long enough. It's not so great for work. It's not so great for church. When we have fluid attachments that are driven by our own needs, um, and in a, in a city, it's, you see, it's, it's possible to do that. You don't like your school, you put your kids in another school. You don't like your supermarket, you find another one. You don't like your job, you find another job. You don't like your wife, you go on Tinder and find another one, or at least some relief from the one you have. You don't like church, you find another church. It's just the way it is in a city. Uh, and, that's, and, and like there's a lot of benefit in that. I'm a big fan of choice. Maybe not so much when it comes to marriage, but in the other areas, I'm a big fan of that. But the cost is it can be highly corrosive of community and leave us actually desperately lonely. So what's the answer? What's the solution? Well, actually, the solution is, is the, the, uh, the rituals and the practice of church. It's rituals like coming to church, <laughs> Sabbath. Um, uh, the people who study these things tell me that for you to feel a sense of community, you need a number of things to be present. You need uh, frequency of relating, freak touch points with each other, right? So in fact, they'll say if you really want to feel like you're embedded in a community, you need to see people or connect with them three or four times a week for it to feel really rich and thick. And uh, in addition to seeing them three or four times a week, you need to connect with them with an element of spontaneity, right? And don't you know that? Like, uh, the feeling 
if you just bump into someone on the street or in the corridor at work and you have a chat over the water cooler, the proverbial water cooler, the spontaneous connection feels very different to the, I've planned this in to have dinner with you in three months' time because that's the only time we can actually connect. And isn't that the, I mean, it feels like you might still connect, but it feels so different. So we have to figure out ways of organizing ourselves so that there are rituals that give us a frequency and a spontaneity and a regularity to our connections. And church is designed to do that, right? It's the Sabbath. One in day in seven, down tools and focus on God and focus on each other. You know, the, the more regularly you're, you're connected into a community like this, into church, the deeper and richer it becomes. And that's hard, I know. Kids' sport, and you got this, and da 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 da. It's tough, I know. It's hard. Nothing, if it, nothing that's really deeply worthwhile doing is easy. Otherwise, everyone would do it, right? <laughs> so it is with church attendance, small group attendance, put, making yourselves available to connect with people. But here's the beauty, right? That 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 in God's providence, the church in a, in a city like ours is the one is one of the few remaining places where you can find a community that is, has rituals and rhythms and regularity and that's open that anyone can join. You don't get it anywhere else. If you've got little kids, you might get it at your local primary school. The local primary school is the last bastion of this kind of community in a city like Sydney. But even that's breaking down when both partners have to work all the time. No one has time to actually be there, to hang around and pick up and go out for coffee and just in, be involved in the social fabric of the community. So the church, this is it. This is our secret source. <laughs> Community, like, it's amazing. Don't take it for granted. If, if you've been in the church a long time, and I know many of you have, don't take for granted how remarkable it is that there would be a couple of hundred people who would form a deep community where we meet in each other's homes, where we share life with each other, and we're also open to anyone else who wants to join us. That's remarkable. Most close families are quite exclusive. We've got our lovely little family, but oh, don't you join it. And the church says, we've got an amazing family. And hey, you can join it as well. It's, you know, it's life-giving. It's intergenerational. I, I don't, we're not quite at that demographic here, but I said this at nine, and, and the older folk there were really nodding because I said, what, you know what's massively important as you get older? Is that you, you don't just stay friends with your peers You've got to have a lot of friends who are younger than you. Why? Because let me tell you, as you get older, if you live a long time, all your friends are going to die if you're just friends with your peers. So the church is this amazing place where you can make multi-generational community work. And it's pretty special. Where else do you get that in a city like ours? It's socioeconomically inclusive, inclusive of age. It's... it's that's, this is the answer. But it costs, right? It really does cost. I get it. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. This is, this is a talk for everybody who's not here. <laughs> Actually, it's a talk for all of us. Because it's amazing, isn't it? It's precious. It's beautiful. The local church. Woven together. We can make a claim on each other's lives. We can be there for each other. It's great, isn't it? Isn't it? It's fantastic. But I hear you say, but 
Church can also be incredibly disappointing, can't it? As can marriage and family and all other forms of relationship. Why is that? Well, because the, the final level is not just ideas, the big meta idea that works down into our practices, but then there's something inside of us, in your heart and in my heart, that is actually going to get in the way of dealing with our loneliness. What do you think that is? What makes it really hard to form friendships at a heart level? Well, the busyness happens around, I think it's fear. I mean, we are busy, it's true, but I think there's deep inside of us, isn't there just a fear at a heart level? And what's that fear? It's, it, the fear means we're highly ambivalent about relationships. Like we all want to connect, we all want to belong, we all want to be known and to know, but what are we scared of? What if I open the kimono and you have a look there and you go, ugh. I mean, you know, metaphorically speaking. Ugh. Ooh. What if I come and I, I make myself vulnerable and I make a bid for connection and I reach out to you and I say, oh, look, uh, man, it'd be great to catch up for coffee sometime this week. This is going to happen after church. I know, you're going to have these conversations. And you say to someone, it'd be great to catch up for coffee sometime this week. And the person goes, yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And they leave it at that. <laughs> And then the next week, you see them again, oh, look, it'd be lovely to catch up, wouldn't it? And they go, yeah, no, it worked. That'd be great. And they leave it at that. And then you try again. Eventually, what do you do? You go, no, there's something in me that they see, and they go, I'm not, I, they don't want to see me. We're really scared of rejection, aren't we? Because ultimate reality is about a community of persons in relationship. When our belonging to relationship is threatened, it feels like our very life is threatened. That's why it's so scary. Because when you reject me, when you exclude me, you actually pose an existential threat to me and I to you. It's real. We're terrified. We, so it's this, uh, it's like moths to a flame. We're drawn to love and community, but we're repelled by it. Actually, moths aren't until they get Let's try a different metaphor. We're drawn and we're repelled simultaneously because we're scared. What's the answer to that? Well, the answer to fear is... love. 1 John says, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with judgment. So the answer for the, the fear that I feel, I won't speak about you, the fear that I feel about being rejected, of making myself vulnerable, of making bids for connection, of trying to weave together a community, the answer to that fear is to know that I am loved and eternally accepted. And this is the incredibly good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, came into our world. The son left the family that he was part of in Jesus Christ and came into this world to love us and to love you and to accept you. And at the heart of Christianity, there is a message that says you are loved and eternally accepted by the God who made you. 
and that the way you experience this love is that the God who lived in perfect community came to die alone so that you, alone in your fear, could die in community. As, and think about it, right? As Jesus hangs on the cross, what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This God who'd always been in a perfect community of love, this God dies alone, why? So that our fear, the, our loneliness, our alienation, all of that can be healed and restored. And in the death of Jesus, in a mysterious way, he takes our loneliness and gives us his community with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So we're loved. So what does that mean? Uh, means no matter what anyone else ever says of me or does to me, I know that the creator of the universe loved me enough to live and die for me. So if you reject me, it's not the end of my life. It's sad and it hurts, but it's not the end because my life is in Christ because he gave himself for me. How do I deal with the terror of vulnerability in marriage? Word to the married people. Intimacy in marriage is terrifying. If you don't understand that, it's because you don't understand it, but it is. To be vulnerable, to be that open and honest and transparent, and you know, um, there's, a, there's a marriage therapist, a family marriage therapist called David Snarch, who's written some incredible books around the terror we feel around intimacy and vulnerability. And, and, and his argument is all problems about, of sex in marriage are essentially intimacy and vulnerability problems. And, and it's terrifying. So what is the answer to the terror of long-term monogamous intimacy? It's knowing that I have a friend in Jesus. And even if my partner rejects me, my life is secure in him. So I can take those risks. I can lean in. What's the solution to a community like ours being life-giving and not destructive? It's because we have a friend in Jesus. So even when people let us down, I can still take those risks. What is, what is the, where does the power come from to be friends with people who are no good for you? Right? Like in our culture, we love being friends who can help us. High status, wealthy, attractive, blah, blah, blah. Some of their sheen loves off, rubs off on us, and it's great. And we feel better about ourselves when we're around them. But Christian community says we've got to be friends with people who have nothing to offer us except their need and their brokenness. Where does the power come from to do that? Well, it's because my needs for friendship are met in Jesus Christ. I'm secure in him. So it's okay if, if I'm just giving. Do you know the power of the love of God in your life to set you free from fear so that you can really make good friendships in your marriage, in your family, in your community, and in our church? It's amazing. Anything else, without this, life's a miserable business, according to Ecclesiastes. But with Christ, it's a glorious foretaste of heaven. A glorious foretaste of heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we ask you, I ask you, I beg you now to fill our hearts with your love. Give us the courage to 
make ourselves vulnerable and open ourselves up to friendship with each other, with you. Help us to restructure our lives, our practices, and our priorities to enable us to, to express this and help us change our minds about how we see the world. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. We're going to um, move to communion. Are the kids coming in? I think the kids are going to join us for communion. Anyway, they will eventually.